millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the most you ever lost in the politics? Go ahead. Make my day. Hello everybody and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Hole Cinema. This is the first new proper Black Hole uh, with myself, Tony Black, reviewer of film. Since the whole podcast was rebranded and of course last time you were given a uh, greatest hits <laughs> package with a couple of reviews and some discussion on the Oscars. But this is the first one with new reviews that I've done specifically for this podcast. So this is how it begins. So this is today uh, the first one. So I'm going to be doing some reviews of Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit, the new Robocop remake and the Lego movie. They are all to come on the show. First though, I'd just like to talk for a little bit about a new love of mine. Well, not quite a new love of mine, but something that I've really begun to get more invested in over the last week or two. Films like Letterboxd, which is one of the best out there now, if not the best, because in essence, just to reiterate, Letterboxd is effectively a Facebook for film, in a sense. People go on there, they post film reviews, people can like their film reviews, there's a star rating, and every time you post a film review, it goes onto your diary, so you can see how many films you've you've reviewed or you've watched. You don't have to review them, you can just like that, you can just um, put a star rating, or you can say, I watched this on this date, it records the date you watched it. So it becomes a diary mixed with like a Facebook with a time stream of of people who like your reviews and you can like other reviews and um, there's discussion and everything like that. And it's a great site. It's a really great site and it's something that I've become a lot more involved in and quite a few people are following me on there now, mainly because I'm following almost everyone <laughs> on it, um, which seems to be the most, uh, the best way really to get your face out there really and to get your reviews read by people is by being able to have quite a few people following you and it's it seems a, it's a really nice community and it's been it's been around for a few years now and there's quite a lot of people on there and there are some incredibly incredibly talented reviewers on there people who have such a wonderful knowledge of film and there are so many films on there that I'd never heard of and I still have never heard of that um, you can put into a watch list which can also be tethered to Netflix as well um, which is a really good little fixture and it's really opened my eyes to some amazing movies that I didn't know about or I wouldn't have watched. And there's almost like a, a real feeling of achievement every time 
you watch a film and you review a film and especially when people like it and they put lovely comments and say, you know, that was, thank you. That's made me want to go and watch it, which I myself have done. You know, I've, I've put a, a comment on a review and said, that was brilliant. I want to watch this film now. And you know, there's, there's a real friendly sense to the place of just a lot of lovers of film um, who like to chat about all kinds of things really. And it's, it's a place that I feel I've dabbled in before, but I've never really committed to in the past. I've been, I've been putting reviews on there for a few years because I used to write them after I go to the cinema and things and, and after I watch them. And I, I used to put them on Flickster, which was a, a very, he's still around Flickster, but it was a very poor man's letterbox, you know, and it, it was the functionality of it was horrible. And a lot of people on it were posting inanity. And that's not the case with Letterboxd. Letterboxd does this far better. And so I copied a lot of the Flickster reviews over to Letterboxd. But I'm not quite happy with all of them. You know, a lot of them are quite short. And I have a certain length I like to do for reviews. And I feel like I'm going to more depth. So there are certain films that I've watched before that I will go back and re-review, I imagine, um, in time. But right now I'm focusing on watching things I've not seen before as, as much as possible. There's the odd rewatch, But it's, get, it's allowing me to get through my Sky Plus box which is absolutely crammed with movies I mean it's full it's got like about five percent left <laughs> and it has been for about a year and then some of these films have been on there um the, the the ones that go back the furthest I think are August but I've had films on there for up to a year before and I've not got around to watching them so I'm blasting my way through those as I go and I've also been using Sky Go Extra actually which is uh, allowing you to download movies onto uh, your iPad and watch them offline, uh, which is great because my iPad doesn't have internet connection, so I can't watch them. I can't watch Netflix or anything when I'm on journeys and things. But uh, when I travel to work in the morning because I don't drive, I can watch like 40, 45 minutes of a movie, which is really good. I did that with the Cable Guy last week, and then on the journey home, uh, you know, again you you can almost pretty much watch a film. It's just split up in chunks, and that doesn't really tend to bother me much being able to split it in chunks because I've still got the rhythm of it in my head and you know it, it, it means that you can you can get through it and I, I've recently I've tended to be watching about two films a day two or three films a day so I've really been getting through quite a lot and I'll, I'll you know some of them I, I haven't necessarily completely finished I would I would add some of them are so have been so bad that you get to about an hour an hour and ten in and you can review enough really based on what the film is because it's you know, and if you're not particularly interested in, in, in the whole thing, then I, I, I move on. And I do have this quite stringent uh, <laughs> rule where if, it, if I hate it in the first 30 minutes, it, it fails. I, I, don't, I don't rate it. I just stop watching. And there have been a few. The last one I think that I did that with was The Raven um, with John, Cus John Cusack about Edgar Allan Poe, which was awful. Awful. So I, I, I gave up on that 30, 30 or 40 minutes in. So, and it doesn't happen very often, but there, there is a list on Letterboxd, actually, because you can put lists up and, and review things, which is great. And it, that introduces you to new films and discussion topics and things like that. And there's a list of, of the, um, the ones I couldn't finish. And I, every time that happens, I put, I put that on that list. Battleship was another one recently, which, I mean, that film starts with Taylor Kitsch drunkenly trying to uh, steal a, a, a chicken kebab. Or something like that, and it was at that point that I knew this was it was going to be terrible. I, I I had an idea anyway, but you know words fail me on how bad that is. Um, so I I 
I stopped watching that. So, yeah, it's it, it's it's being on Letterboxd is conversely both really fun right now, and it's also really gearing me into making sure that I watch these films. Ironically enough, as I as I record this, I'm, it's the it's the weekend, and I'm I'm sh- I'm in the middle of a point where I ha- I just haven't had time to watch anything for like a day or two, and it's really getting me annoyed because I actually plan to go um, to the cinema um, to watch the films that you'll get in next week's podcast. But I just haven't had the time yet, and it's starting to frustrate me <laughs> somewhat. So, uh, but in, in general, Letterboxd is, is, really, is a really great is a really great tool for making you want to watch more movies and learning about movies and meeting some really, really nice people who uh, are very friendly and are clearly film lovers. So it, it's nice, and it's, I feel like I'm be, hopefully becoming more part of that community there. And it's it, it will improve, I think. You know, site-wise, the functionality of it does have its flaws. There are there are certain, it's not as fluid as, as things like Twitter and Facebook and and other social networking sites because it is effectively a social networking site. It just happens to be combined with the film review site. But it, so it, it will have to develop like that. But I paid my ten pounds to become a paid, uh, a pro member, which means you get to filter your lists and things like that, and you get to. Um, you get to have like a yearly review page that you can look at things that free members don't get. So um, it's not massively more, but it, it's a nice feeling that you've contributed to something and 10 pounds a year. I mean, <laughs> that's value, <laughs> you know, that's value. That's less than a pound a month. So, uh, you know, that, that's more than affordable. And uh, there is an, another level called patron, which uh, I may well, I may well do next year, possibly if, if Letterboxd continues to evolve and grow and I'm still enjoying being there. Um, and you do get a few more extras, I think, with that. But it's not really about that. It's more about being part of, of this community, and it's it's nice. So I recommend Letterboxd hugely. If, you, if you're listening to this podcast, you're more than likely a fan of film, and if you're not on Letterboxd yet, do check it out, because you really will be uh, enlightened and, and entertained by it. Okay, then, let's get to the meat of the drama and review some films. First up, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit. Cornerback had the situation. Somebody tried to kill me. Jack. Jack. Does work okay? Uh. Yeah. So the Jack Ryan character is one who I've uh, watched for quite some time, actually. He's from the uh, novels of Tom Clancy, the late Tom Clancy, who died last year, sadly. From novels such as The Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, all of, all of which have been uh, made, many of which have been made into films uh, over the years, with different people playing Jack Ryan. Originally, the first one was in the well-known Hunt for Red October adaptation with uh, Sean Connery. And that had Alec Baldwin playing a Jack Ryan who wasn't really the main character. It was, it was more um, Sean Connery's submarine captain who was the main character in that. So he didn't really make much of an impact. But then it was about two or three years later that Harrison Ford took the role on in Patriot Games, where he really became much better known as a character. And Harrison Ford played a Jack Ryan. Because you see in the books, Jack Ryan, is, he, go, he goes from being uh, fairly young all the way up to being the president of the United States over, over a course of decades. And you see, and Clancy charts the career of this guy from being a lowly analyst with a bit of field work up to the ruler of the free world. So, 
the the films have, have placed him in various di- various different places. They haven't yet done the Jack Ryan film where Jack Ryan is the president. They've done him either at the beginning or in the middle. And the Harrison Ford ones were him in the middle. So he was middle aged. He had uh, he was married to uh, Kathy's wife, who we only only briefly saw in Humphrey October. She's a much bigger character in Patriot Games and a clear and present danger. Uh, the sequel, and they both have uh, they both have children. So, and the Jack Ryan in that he's he's he has to get into action man scrapes, but he uh, he's it's not really his forte. He is more of an intelligence guy, an analyst. But when he does get into action, because it's Harrison Ford, it, it's okay. And I mean, the, still the best action sequence of any Jack Ryan film is the climax of Patriot Games, which is one of the most thrilling ten minutes I've ever seen on film. Actually, anyway. And Clear and Present Danger, the sequel, is equally very, very good. They're both very, they're both very quite, quite good films in, of the 90s. So then fast forward 10 years and they decide to give it another try with Jack Ryan. Harrison Ford isn't playing the character anymore. It's now Ben Affleck who plays a much younger Jack Ryan towards the beginning of his career. You know, he's a CIA analyst. He gets caught up in this Russian plot. Well, this plot to destabilise America and Russia with, by these you know, neo-Nazis or something or other like that. And Ben Affleck plays quite a shabby version of the character. You know, he's um, he's, he's not in suits or anything. He's he's in like cagoules and he's going out with a really hot version of Kathy, but she's very bland. You know, and she she's she's kind of involved in the story, but not hugely. And it's more about Ryan proving himself. You know, and it's got a really good cast. The sum the sum of all fears. It's got a great cast. It's got Morgan Freeman as as the the James Earl Jones role in the in the original uh, films. James Earl Jones plays. Admiral Greer, who's kind of his mentor, and Morgan Freeman's that character in The Sum of All Fears. And The Sum of All Fears, it's, it's not a bad film, you know, it's, it's, it, it wasn't a hit, it wasn't a massive hit, it wasn't amazing, but it was pretty good, and it told its story quite well, with, as I say, an excellent cast. Anyway, for whatever reason, probably to do with box office, they didn't do any more. And even though, and Ben Affleck, he, he kind of worked, but I don't know, he didn't really fly in the role. But he, I'll be honest, I think he works better than Chris Pine in this new film, because fast forward... And they finally decided to give Jack Ryan another shot with Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. And what Shadow Recruit does is tap into the current trend of reboots, basically. It goes down the very much Casino Royale, Batman Begins route of taking a well-known action movie character, stripping him back to the beginning and retelling the mythos in inverted commas. Now, the problem with this with Jack Ryan is that nobody knows the mythos. You know, with Bond, everybody knew that we hadn't seen the beginning of him becoming 007 and his first missions and, and how he's this rough diamond that they have to polish up and he has to become Bond, which is essentially what Casino Royale is. With Batman, it's obviously the story of Bruce Wayne, you know, coming back to Gotham and he's, he becomes Batman. The story of Jack Ryan, it's, it's not, you know, he's not nearly the, the, at the same level of, of interest as Bond or Batman. Now, this, this isn't necessarily a criticism because, you know, it, it, a film should stand on its own. It shouldn't be beholden to other things. But the problem with Jack Ryan is he kind of tries to mythologise at the beginning a character that most people won't even know who he is. You know, a lot of the people watching this film won't have probably watched the previous Jack Ryan films, which are over 10 years, and, and the bigger ones that are 20-odd years ago, and they, and they more than likely won't have read the, the, the Tom Clancy novels. Not most people. So it's, he's effectively a new character, but he's being propped up like this, you know, this this all-American stock hero with this rebooted mythos. And you're left thinking, well, this is exactly what other films have done better. And that is, unfortunately, the feeling that you get all the way through Shadow Recruit. 
That is, that is the single through line feeling that I had all the way through Shadow Recruit. I've seen this done before because it follows a very, very traditional arc of a story. Jack Ryan recruited into the CIA has, you know, and, and what, it, what it does manage to do fairly well is, is make the point that he's not a natural action man, which was my biggest worry that they would be doing it in very much a Bond style, that they would try and make this another Jason Bourne, you know, esque kind of action thriller and make Jack Ryan much more of an action guy. And it kind of does do that at places, but it is at pains to point out, you know, he's not, he's not naturally a guy with a gun. He, is a, a, he has got a PhD in economics. He is a guy who's more at home with his figures and his facts and working stuff out than he is like, running around shooting people up with guns and smacking them down. You know, there's a, there's a sequence at the beginning where he has to, he, he, somebody tries to kill him and he has to, he has to kill them and it's, it completely messes with his head and he has no idea what he's doing or where he's going to go and things like that. And that's quite good. You know, that element is quite good. And Chris Pine, he's, he's, you can't dislike Chris Pine. He's impossible to dislike. He's, he, he is very, he is very all-American, you know. He fits the role in one sense, but then in another, there's kind of like a bit of a cocky charm that you definitely see when he's playing Captain Kirk, which fits very well. And he, he, he can't quite do that as much with Jack Ryan, because Jack Ryan is much more of a traditional stock, slightly maybe even, you know, nerdy kind of character in, in a way. And... I think if Chris Pine was playing this at Harrison Ford's age, when Harrison Ford played it, he'd actually be much better. But he's he's not, you know, he's playing it young, and he's he's probably as he's probably a, as good as you can get. Although I think Ben Affleck was a better fit. Anyway, he's pretty good, but he's playing a character who he, who Kenneth Branagh is as a director tries to actually mix into being this guy with brains and occasionally this guy with brawn, and that doesn't altogether come together either. But most of the time, remember, it pains to point out he's not that way. But all the way through, it just follows this traditional story. Ryan, getting onto this mission, has to stop a guy who's got this plot against America. It ties into terrorism. It ties into the recession. It's a kind of story that... It's actually a fairly decent like idea in terms of how it does tap into our fears of, of the global economy crashing, which is actually a far more you know, credible threat these days than somebody firing a nuclear weapon o- over the top of us. It is more likely that someone, if they crash the economy and we become, an, and there's another Great Depression, that's a scarier, more realistic idea than a bomb going off, really, by and large. And that's the basic the story of this. And that's actually quite, quite a good idea. The problem is that it just follows this narrative that just, you know, you've seen it before. You've seen it in Mission Impossible 3 with him having to keep secret from Kira Knightley, yawn, who plays his wife, Kathy, and she's traditionally Kira Knightley. You know, she's putting on American accent, but she's still boring. She's still bland. She's still not a very good actress. And, you know, he's having to keep this secret from her. And, you know, that, that we saw that in Mission Impossible 3. Tick off the spy thrillers where you've seen the old wise handler who is play, here played by Kevin Costner, playing the Greer role, as I said before, or the Morgan Freeman role, essentially. But he's a bit more of an action man. And, you know, Kevin Costner's always good value, but he's just doing stuff he's done, he's done before, or we've seen done before. You know, you've seen things like this, where he's, he's, he's the grizzled old... He's, he's basically the, the Bruce Wheat Greenwood character from, from Star Trek, who has to, you know, Captain Pike, who has to, you know, gear Kirk on the right direction. He's playing that role, basically. I'm surprised he didn't get killed off in the third act, actually. That's normally what happens. Anyway... So, you know, he's playing a character you've seen before, and he's all right, but he doesn't really sparkle. Kenneth Branagh. Now, Kenneth Branagh, you know, he's, he's a great actor. He's, you know, it's hard to it's hard to knock Kenneth Branagh at all. But 
he's he's not in that much of it, especially at the beginning. And his villain is just, again, the kind of villain you've seen done before. Cold-hearted, a bit Ikea, suffering from his own demons, uh, has this committed reason to his country. And the other thing is that it makes Russia look... But it's really old-fashioned, this film, in a way. It really does tap into a kind of, you know, 80s, 90s idea of Russia being the enemy, in inverted commas. The only thing is here that they're, they're quietly getting Kenneth Branagh's character to pull the strings and do this because they're worried more about their, their economy and, and everything like that. It's, it's a very, you know, traditional way. Instead of the, the old days where Russia were trying to get microfilms and, and smuggle weapons through, now they're actually trying to cause the American economy to crash. But it's the same thing. It's Russia as the villain with... Kenneth Branagh is the extremist guy who is kind of doing it because of his country, but he's kind of doing it because he's also a little bit nuts. Although he's not even psychotic enough to be nuts, except for one sequence where you actually want him to do to Kira Knightley what he does try and do to Kira Knightley with the light bulb. Anyway, it's just because she's Kira Knightley. But, but it's just, that's a bit harsh, but you know. Anyway, <laughs> it's just, it's not boring. It's, it's entertaining, but you will, if you've seen these kind of films, you will know exactly what's going to happen. I had, there was one point where I was sitting there thinking, right, well, that they're going to be attacked now. Any minute now, they're going to be attacked. And guess what? They were attacked. You know, and it was just, I was sitting there thinking, to what, in the climax of it, the very climax, the action climax, I was literally, I switched off. I was switching off. I actually, at one point, looked back at the screen and went, oh, shit, it's still happening, it's still going on. Oh, okay. That That's how, I wasn't bored, but I was distracted. And I think, if you haven't seen any of these kind of espionage films before, you may really, really like this. If you have, you won't find anything in it new at all. It's good. It's, well, it's not bad, but it's not much. They will bring us to our knees without even firing a shot. There's a very real scenario here where we don't get out of this alive. We are compromised. If you find the truth, will you believe it? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Moving on then, next up, Dead or Alive, you're listening to this review. It's Robocop. This Detective Alex Murphy and Officer Down. We are on the eve of a technological revolution. We need to give Americans a figure they can rally behind. Give your mom a kiss. Hi, baby. Too slow, boy. We're going to put a man inside a machine. Now, it's interesting going into this reboot of Robocop because I hadn't seen Robocop for years and years and years and years. It was, in fact, it was probably since when I was a kid was the last time I actually saw Robocop. So, you know, when you see a film when you're a, ch- when you're a child, you, you can't have the same, you know, resonance with it. You can't really understand it in the same way you do when you're in your 20s or your 30s. So, in a way, when I watched Robocop, the original, on the night before I saw the remake, it felt like a new film to me, almost. It felt like I was the first time I was watching it, even though certain things came back to me. And, of course, that original film is... Quite the classic, actually. It's quite an underrated classic science fiction film from Paul Verhoeven, his first major Hollywood movie. And it's got a reputation, I think, for being very, you know, respected and everything, but being quite pulp and violent and nihilistic, which it is. But it's also extremely clever, extremely satirical behind all the violence. And it's got a real sort of, it's, it's very 80s, but it's got a real kind of underlying set of ideas to it. And I've, I remembered that going through, you know, the last few years. So when they announced they were doing a remake of Robocop, you know, immediately you're thinking, oh, why? What's the point? Apart from the fact that you know the point is money. You know the point is the financial aspect that Robocop is a built-in audience. And you know it's going to make some coin, which I'm sure this film has. And will do. But... It was kind of riding off the fact that, you know, they just remade Total Recall, which was a total mess. That's what it really should have been called. Well, actually, that's a bit unfair. That film wasn't actually as bad as people said it was. It was it was it looked great and it was it was stupid, but it was actually quite fun in places. It was okay. But it was not, of course, as good as Total Recall, the another film made by Paul Verhoeven, another fairly underrated classic of of sci fi of that time. So you get to Robocop, you get to this remake, and immediately a lot of people are on the are on the back foot, are thinking, wow, wow, hang on a minute, it's gonna be it's gonna be rubbish, it's gonna be blockbuster, it's just gonna be, you know, reheated pap, given the typical Hollywood sheen of these days. And you know what? That's not quite what they've done. Robo- Robocop the remake actually surprised me a little bit. I, I, I went in there, I didn't actually expect it to be terrible. I really didn't. Because the guy who directed it, Jose Padilla, has been talking up a lot of the aspects that he's that he's been planning with it. And it, it, they, they all sounded good. He assembled a terrific cast, a real terrific ensemble cast for this. 
people like Gary Oldman, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Keaton, Jennifer Ely, Jay Baruchel, lot, lots of lots of, of good actors in various different roles, uh, as well as Joel Kinnaman playing uh, Robocop himself, who's not a massively well-known actor, uh, but it's similar. It's it's similar kind of casting to when they cast Peter Weller in the original. Now Peter Weller still isn't massively well-known. He's one of those guys that if you know who he is, you realise how awesome he is. Most recently, he was the villainous Admiral Marcus in Star Trek Into Darkness, but he's also been in tons of other stuff, and he's great. But he, at the time, wasn't a major star, so he, he was able to sink into the Robocop suit fairly well. But Joel Kinnaman, Joel Kinnaman's the same. And what they've done with this Robocop is, it's, it's standard Hollywood fare, to the extent that it naturally taps more about the emotional side of Robocop. in the original, Verhoeven, because he's Verhoeven, he's much more interested in the violence and the, the brutality and the, the very strong, satirical, let's you know fight the system kind of thing that he had in all, most of his films, that he has in most of his films. He was more interested really in that than getting into the core of, of what actually had happened to Alex Murphy, the, the, the lieutenant who he's shot and pretty much killed and then placed into the Robocop suit by this corporation who basically want to put a machine on the streets to help their further their cause. And it, that's exactly the same thing as in the original, except it's, it's for different reasons now. In the original, it was all about this corporation making money and them and being able to construct this new vision for Detroit City. In this new Robocop, it's about them being able to put a public face on their money-making weapons applications. You know, the very first scene is this company, uh, Omnicorp, I think they call them, and they're they're putting these robots on the streets of, of Iran or Iraq or somewhere like that. And you've got these fundamentalist terrorists trying to blow up these American robots while Samuel L. Jackson's complete Bill O'Reilly-esque, incredibly biased, incredibly right-wing news anchor, incredibly Republican news anchor, frankly, is, you know, championing this, championing uh, Michael Keaton's Raymond Sellers, who's the the head of Omnicorp, who's basically involved in this battle with the Senate, the American Senate, for who who gets to put robots on the streets of America. You know, he wants to, to put robot law enforcement on the streets of America but and put more weapons out there and get them and it's, it's, it's a full satire on, on the American imperialist approach to war and, and, and combat and and that's that's very much the the undercurrent idea you know you've got these hawks in, in America now championing oh we must go and invade Iran we must go and invade all these Middle Eastern countries but imagine if they had imagine if they had these robot soldiers that could go out there and be these merciless killing machines for the government and in order to get the public on side for this it's a very 50-50 debate between a pro-robot and, a, and, and an anti-robot senator. And the the public face is chosen to be Robocop. And, you know, the, basically they want to get a guy out there who can be seen as a hero. And that's what happens to Joel Kinnaman's character. And what they do in this film, what Josie Padilla do, does, is give Robocop much more of a an arc in terms of his development. He does more with his family. You know, Abby Cornish plays... Uh, Alex Murphy's wife, and he's got a son, and it's and it taps into a lot more about what Murphy feels as he realizes that his life has been destroyed, and then he's in this suit and he has to come to terms with being Robocop and learn how to do all the things that Robocop can do. And arguably, that's the bit of the film that drags the most because it takes a long time to get us from the 
accident that causes Murphy um, to be injured, team being on the streets of Detroit and being Robocop. And it's not a big plot spoiler to say that it kind of follows the same kind of pattern as the first one in that Murphy ultimately realises, oh no, there is a conspiracy. And he starts to basically take down the people who've put him on the streets, effectively. You know, it's not quite as, success- as successful as the, as the other one. I mean, uh, in the original film, Ronnie Cox was, was, was a wonderful bastard as, the head, as Dick Jones, the head of the, of the company. Michael Keaton's good, but he plays... He, he, whereas, whereas Ronnie Cox was like a, an 80s corporate shark... Michael Keaton's much more of like a, a an amoral Steve Jobs. You know, he wears jeans, he's got like a cool jacket and, and shirt, and he goes around, you know, uh, in sleep boardrooms, basically suggesting people do some really, really amoral and dark things. But he does it with a very corporate smile on his face. And it's it's, it's a different interpretation. It's much more, it fits much more the the climate that we're in now. It's, it's, it's much more appropriate to the times. It just doesn't have quite the bite that Ronnie Cox did. It doesn't have the, you know that element to it. And, it, you know, it's, the satire is is more obvious. It's, it's, it's less cutting. It's less, you know, provocative. And that goes for the whole thing. You know, I mean, it, the, the, it's a 12A, so all the violence is pretty much gone. Yeah, there's, there's blood. There's Well, there's not really blood. There's guns. There's explosions. There's the normal action fair. And it's done pretty well. I mean, you know, he's done well. The CGI is good. Robocop, when he's out there, he's damn cool. And... You know, it, that's all great. It's just, whereas the original Robocop, literally, you had people's heads being blown off by shotguns and you would see everything, you know. That was that was brilliant. You, you couldn't do that anymore, really. It would look, it, would, it wouldn't it would look right anymore. It was, a, it was a very 80s, 90s Verhoeven kind of thing and these, these kind of filmmakers. So I understand why they didn't do that. But at the same time, it means that this Robocop is far more your family's Robocop in a way, even though it's, you know, it's, it's touching on some quite you know, dark action things. It does have some well-executed sequences. There's this brilliant moment where Robocop storms this warehouse and um, take, taking out the bad guys. Unfortunately, no one as cool as, as, Clar- as Kurtwood Smith's Clarence Bodica from the first one. The, the villains in that sense are, are far less effective and, and, you know, Padilla's not interested in them at all. But there's this great sequence where he storms this warehouse and it's in, it's in the dark and all you see are the explosions from the bullets and that's how we see the action. And it's really well done. So it does have good sequences. It's it's well acted. Gary Oldman is brilliant in this. You know, he plays a very torn doctor between... He's like a, a doctor with a conscience who helps create Robocop. And the, really, the, the relationship between Robocop and that doctor is the main relationship. And it taps into all the themes as to whether, you know, what they're doing is right. You know, should should they do this to a man? Is he more than a man? Is he a machine? You know, it gets a lot more into the ethical and, and moral debate, really, of this. And it, and it spends a fair bit of time doing that. And that's good because the original film didn't. So that's where this distinguishes from that. And that's where that's why I think that this Robocop, it's not as good as the original. It really isn't. But it's not a million miles away. It's better than it had any right to be, really. And it's it's it's, it's exciting. It's, it's quite funny at places. And it's got a real attempt to do things its own way while still honouring the Robocop mythos and things like that. And I think people who are suggesting that there's no satire and, and, and it's a pointless remake are missing the point a little bit, in that it does revamp the idea of this into the present day, and it does have something to say. No classic, but I'll tell you what, it's better than the Total Recall reboot. Definitely. The human element will always be present. Compassion, fear, instinct. They will always interfere with the system. 
Time to look at something which could have been a real car crash of a commercial bludge, but actually isn't. It's the Lego movie. Hello, I'm Emmett. I'm just going to come right out. I have no idea what's going on at all. My fellow master builders, including, but not limited to, Superman, Wonder Woman, The Mermaid, Green Ninja, 1980-something Space Guy, Hello. Michelangelo, Michelangelo, and the 2002 NBA All-Stars. We have learned that Lord Business plans to end the world as we know it. There is yet one hope. The special has arisen. So, Lego Movie, then, is based on, obviously, the, the well-known um, building blocks uh, toy which has been going for absolutely years I played with Lego when I was a kid and Lego has, has subsequently diverged into this uh, huge um, diverse company which now have ties into all kinds of different brands and all kinds of different movie uh, franchises and all these different things and they produce these these well known toys obviously that, that kids take and they build and they put blocks on each other. I'm sure you've played Lego. I'm sure you know what Lego is. And recently they've had the computer games come out. The Lego superhero games. Lego Batman. Lego Lego Harry Potter. Le- Lego or Lego Indiana Jones. All these different games that have done really well on the PlayStation and Xbox and all this stuff. And that, they're, they're a lot of fun. Quite, I've played a few of them and they are quite a lot of fun. So it was inevitable really that we get to the point where they do a Lego movie. Uh, an animated Lego movie. You know, it's, it's a cast iron thing. But of course, you know, with, with these things, they can go one way or the other, can't they? I mean, right now, animation, by and large, I'd say it's one of the most rock-steady kinds of production you can get, really, in terms of film. When it's good, anyway, you know, your Pixars, they, don't very, re- they very rarely get things wrong. And I'm talking not just about how it looks. I'm talking about, you know, how it's written, how it's produced, uh, the characterization, everything in... in really good animation it's actually quite often better than you'll get in live action you know you only have to point at films like the incredibles and up and the toy story films you know they, they've raised the bar not just in terms of, of animation they've raised the bar in terms of storytelling you know that live action very very rarely can reach so you know the lego movie had that kind of bar to live up to but it also had the the, the weight of the the corporate side of it, you know, with those Pixar films, they are they are stories. Yes, they end up becoming toys and they end up becoming, you know, m- multi-million dollar franchises that go on Happy Meals and all this, but they don't start that way. The Lego movie did. The Lego movie started as a, a multi-multi-million, billion, whatever, dollar company that has diverged into entertainment. So it could have been really, really crass, really corporate, really just a massive commercial for 90 minutes and there have been people the the responses to this film have been very interesting because there have been people who've been saying that it is one big commercial for lego and then on the other hand there have been i've seen actually more people suggesting that it's the best thing since sliced bread i don't think it's either i think it's somewhere in the middle of both of those things the lego movie is is you know it's clever it's clever because it's not a it's not what it could have been. It could have been just a big glossy splurge of toys on the screen 
that doesn't do anything else and it just becomes this massive entertaining thing. And what it does, it's very interested in subverting a lot of different genres and a lot of different storytelling devices because the story is there's this Lego world that is very almost corporate in itself, very much ran by this guy called President Business who's also a supervillain who has basically controlled the entire Lego multiverse as we find out by making everybody completely the same. He stripped all individuality out of this, this Lego world and he's basically blocked off every other kind of different Lego multiverse that taps into all these different Lego worlds that people can play. You know, like the world full of unicorns or the Wild West or, you know, uh, the space world and all this. And he's locked them off because he wants to keep this one very homogenous world that he can rule. And it's a world where, you know, people have the same routines every day and they listen to the same song, which is this song called Everything is Awesome. And everything is awesome. And it's incredibly, incredibly poppy and awful and addictive <laughs> that it will roll around in your head. It re- works really well in that sense. And so we pick up on this, this character, this very typical Lego bland construction worker character called Emmett, who's uh, voiced by Chris Pratt, whose name isn't well known yet, but give it a year or two and everyone will know who Chris Pratt is. I'll say that now. Anyway. Yeah, he's, he's this really nice kind of character who just basically gets drawn into this whole search for President Business's, basically, President Business has got this super weapon that he wants to use to destroy all the other worlds in the multiverse. And there are this resistance group made up of different people who've escaped his tyranny trying to find this um, special uh, weapon that can stop the super weapon. And he ends up getting sucked into this whole thing of a prophecy that there will be one who will find this this key to the super weapon and he will destroy it and he will become the one. And he gets this plucky, um, feminine, sort of uh, kick-ass, Trinity from the Matrix kind of superheroine, voiced by Elizabeth Banks. And he gets this say, wise old sage of a Obi-Wan Kenobi-like mentor, voiced by Morgan Freeman. And it all follows that very typical adventure movie path of a man with destiny who doesn't know his destiny and he's very bland and... and and then he becomes to, comes to realise there is more to life. And then he finds this, uh, that he's on this quest and he has to pick up, you know, and, it, and it's exactly what many, many cliched films have done in the past. But what the Lego movie is doing is it's, it's taking a bit of a satirical swipe at them while also embracing them. The guys who made this, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who have previously done 21 Jump Street, which I haven't seen, but I've told, I'm told it's very good. They're clearly people who understand how movies work, they're peculiar people who love movies, who've watched a lot of movies, who've seen a lot of these tropes and these genres and these quest movies. And what they've actually done is develop something that is embracing all of that. Because Emmett and, and these characters, they go on this quest, they go to all these different worlds, they end up in the Wild West, they end up in this pretty world full of unicorns where there's this uh, character there who's this princess of the unicorns who is so determined to be nice and love everything, that she's controlling this deep well of fury and frustration and anger that she's burying inside because everything's okay. And then at one point she just explodes and then she takes it out on the villains and it's great. But it's they go to all these different places, you know, and they, they end up going on this quest. But at the same time, it's very much taking a pot shot at that whole, that whole arc of a story and doing different things with it and, and self-referencing things. And of course... The big draw for this film is the fact that, that because Lego have all these, the big draw for this film is because because Lego have all these licensing 
um, toys. They can actually have, you know, trademarked characters in this film. So, you know, Batman plays a a key role, voiced by Will Arnett, who's and he's brilliant, Batman, because he's just this egocentric douche <laughs> all the way through. But he's great. He's still likable. He's still Batman. He's still very gruff, but he also loves himself and thinks everything he does is super cool. And he's the bad guy, and the girls will love him. And he's he's great. He's so much fun. And you know, you get people like you know Han Solo and Chewie pop up, and R two and and um, C three PO, and you know, you get even Milhouse from The Simpsons and Green Lantern. He gets this great little small role, voiced by Jonah Hill, actually, very briefly. And he's just there, and he, he has this really sort of frustrating relationship with Superman. It's quite funny. Superman's in it, you know. And he's got all these characters, so that's part of the fun. And they all come together. And there's lots of, li- lots of little nods and winks to all different movies. You know, Lord of the Rings is a big one that's nodded to. And lo- lots, lots of these different, you know, inspirations. And that's one of the things that's going to draw people in to watch the Lego movie. Because seeing all these people team up, which will never happen in the real world, in real movies, and probably not even in books, it, it, it's such a real joy to see this happen. But it's, it's also, importantly, making the point that this is a film that actually is saying something a little bit under the surface of all the effects and all the glass and all the action, and there's tons of that. There really is. There's some amazing animation. There's some incredible action sequences. It's very frenetic. It's very, it's very in your face. It's perhaps too in your face, and that, that's one of the things that, I, that makes the Lego movie not quite as amazing as people have said or not up there with the best of the animated films because there were, there were times when... I was struggling to keep keep up to speed with it because it's rushing at you in like like a million miles an hour. And even though that's great from a, a, a movement perspective and the storytelling, and this, it never lets up, and there's always something happening. At times, you just really actually do want it to just stop for a second and take its breath. And it happens maybe once or twice as they try and deepen the relationship between Emmett and some of these characters. But it's not quite enough. And at at times it's just too much. It's too full on. And then there's a final third act narrative choice, a twist, which is is really, really bizarre. And it's really risky. And it's really inventive. It It is interesting, very interesting in what they do. But... It kind of only just works, and I, to say any more would be to spoil it, but it very much talks about the point of hammering home the message of this film, which is, you be your own person. It's very one for the little kids, you know, you be your own person, don't be individual, don't be part of the herd, don't just be, um, do what people completely tell you, you can be who you want to be, but it hammers that message home really hard, and... It, it, but it deserves, it deserves props for having the gall to go where it does in the final act and to try and do that because it's, it's to say it anymore is ruining it, but it's very fourth wall breaking and it's, it's, it's very interesting the way it works. And that's why it does deserve to be held up there as one of the better, one of the better animated movies. And it'll probably end up being one of the better movies of this year, actually, the Lego movie, because I think when people rewatch it, they'll pick up extra things and they'll be able to enjoy it on the merits of what it is. I could well enjoy it more on a second second go. I enjoyed it a lot first time, I really did. But I didn't completely fall in love with it like a lot of people have fallen in love with it and I think it does have its 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 slight flaws. But on the whole, it's it's a great lot of fun and it's importantly it's something that your kids would enjoy and you will be laughing at as well and you will genuinely enjoy alongside them. It just might make you feel a little bit old <laughs> and make you wish you were watching something a little bit more sedate. <laughs> I think I got it, but just in case, tell me the whole thing again, I wasn't listening. 
one of these in orange? I only work in black. And sometimes very, very dark grey. Sadly, that brings us to the end of episode two of Black Hole Cinema. It just leaves me to thank you for listening uh, once again to my brummy tones as I talk to you about the newest films or certain new films. As ever, uh, you can comment on this podcast at uh, www.thecompassnet.com, our genial hosts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Tony underscore O underscore Black. If you want to hear more of my musings on certain uh, subjects, not all about film, sometimes it's football, sometimes it's that I'm tired or cheesed off. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, hopefully never dull. So, again, thank you very much for listening, and uh, enjoy your movie watching. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.